0: The and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith, and I have slightly lost my voice as a result of 20 plus hours of comparing and two sets at Glastonbury Festival. I didn't even go out and go hard and enjoy myself, and I was in bed by two o'clock in the morning every night, which at Glastonbury terms is very reasonable. More exciting stuff, including Bootros's first gig uh, to come. I will tell you all about that in the postamble. But now I am so pleased to finally have had Alison Spittle on this show. She is such a wonderful guest such a tremendous comedian. And we are going to talk about her Edinburgh show, Wet, and why it's no longer simply about a fight during an aqua aerobics class. And we're going to talk about, we're going to listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to content warning this in a sort of general way, because some horrible shitty things have happened to Alison, and she's managed to make excellent comedy out of them. We are going to get into them in some depth, and we're going to talk specifically um, about the challenge of keeping oneself emotionally secure when you're making comedy out of pain. She is such a powerful comic and such a powerful person, and I'm so thrilled she's on the show. Um, we will go into further details. 25 minutes of extras available if you're in the Insiders Club. You can join that comedianscomedian.com/slash-insiders. We will talk about the material that Alison first made her feel like herself uh, on stage, and we'll talk about the journey of her expressing her mental health. Honestly, we'll get into more of that stuff. But so there's sort of 25 minutes of deep, deep dive stuff. The rest of it is just the regular deep dive as opposed to a deep, deep dive. This is a really excellent, honest, and sometimes painful episode. Uh, I'm very proud to bring you Alison Spittle. I never at the beginning say, any, any notes from you before we start? Is there anything you've been, I never, it suddenly occurred to me, because I just ref that you were a fellow podcaster, I thought, and how do you like to begin your podcast? Is there anything?
1: No, 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 you go, you do heavy, I'm very, um, yeah, I'm very excited by this, when I did the BBC podcast, like most of it was during lockdown, so it was very, it was, it all began in lockdown and stuff, so I'm very much kind of like, I'm very much used to having chats with the producer and everything and having the other person in a waiting room. And it must be very weird for the person in the waiting room because, like, you know, it's me and the co-host and... The pod, uh, and the producer having a big chat and like, oh, come in. Yes, yeah, it's fine. You know, it's very... So, well, yeah.
0: Welcome into the digital environment that we've created. I where know. We've got, we've got digital incense and what have you, and it's all a nice welcoming thing. Yeah.
1: We've already established our end jokes, and you're just going to have to nod along or whatever. Exactly. You know, so.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Well, um, On that subject, here's a thing I often forget to do, and I think I've remembered to do it recently to the extent that I often say at the beginning of the show of late, hey, here's a thing I forget to do. I often forget at the beginning of the show to set up how... Uh, how much I am reverent of my guests and who they are. For people who are listening to this who don't know you, let's do... I mean, I don't want to... It's not kind of formal or formatted or anything. It's just that I often forget to say, I obviously think you're completely brilliant. That's why you're on the show. So let me have officially said that now. And I really enjoyed your Mac preview, which you were kind enough to send me the video of. And, like, I... In in my kind of estimation of you as a comic, you were I think you were going to be on Comcom years ago, and then like, like there four was four li- years ago something like that. Was it like a live one, and then the gig fell through? It and was an I'd- act
1: of God. There was a
0: storm. That was it. That was yes. it. That was it. Well remembered, yes. Um, and so I knew you were brilliant at the time mm. and since then I've seen you. It's that exciting thing of when I see someone be even better than I knew they were, I go, "Oh, this is great. This is great." We gigged together recently you were hosting at 21 so- Soho. Yes. And you were fantastic in a way that I thought, "Oh my god, this is like I didn't I don't think I'd seen you with those kind of chops before." Yeah. I knew you were yeah. a good writer, I knew you were a good comic, but mm. I kind of saw you Tell a story. It was the cock blocking material, all and right. you were doing that stuff whilst bouncing a room full of people up and down, and just having that real kind of mastery of the room. And then I saw your your Mac preview, which I believe uh, Nish Kumar was at because yeah. his, his all five of his very recognisable <laughs>, laughs. I was like, I was hooting at the same stuff as him. We were in the same rhythm, and I was like, it's got to be Nish. It's be-. <laughs> and it's it's such a good show. Um how do you fit let's let's zero in on that because that is that the show that's, that's going to Edinburgh presumably to Edinburgh. this year. And what's it called?
1: It's called Wet. It's called Wet. Wet. Oh of course. And, and the, so you've been
0: doing previews called Wet. Why? Whip with an Whip. E on the end. Yeah, yeah lovely.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it reads better than it says, but
0: yeah. One of the things I loved about that show is mm-hmm. it is you sort of don't notice at the time, but it's just two or three long stories. Yes. I yeah. say just, but do you know what I mean? I, I kind of really respect that as a, a comic. Like I've seen you do kind of gear before, but this is the gear is really neatly meshed into the stories. So tell me where you are with it. How ready does that show feel to you? And what do you think it still needs? And, you know, where are you at the moment going with Edinburgh on the horizon?
1: Well, like if you'd have asked me straight after Mac, I would have been like, oh, it's great. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, I. Okay, I do t- Well, I tell you my worries and stuff like that. And like, yeah. it's the first show I've ever done living in Britain. And in Ireland, there is no system for doing hour long shows, even though there's amazing comedians and stuff like that. But I've done shows before. And I think I've worked more on this show than I've worked on all of the other shows combined. And I thought I'd worked hard on the other shows before. But it's actually when you have the opportunity to be on the circuit to to preview stuff um, and when the whole calendar and when everyone around you is working towards that one thing, you know, all your colleagues and everything like that. Like, um, uh, it's, yeah, and everyday conversations are about Edinburgh. It's definitely uh, different for me this time. And it's very, it's very, um, I wanted to do, do this show before lockdown and I, I it was because I... I, I, I have this weird thing of, I, I, I am a person that, when I first started doing comedy, I kind of was very young and I'm, and I'm a little fat, short girl who like would have to get ID'd all the time to buy my, you know, fags and stuff when I smoked and, and, um, and I think I got a lot of comedy from, uh, saying really dark things because I liked monkey dust and all that stuff when I was younger and, um and now I'm older and uh, I've kind of got that out of my system and with the shows I was just like oh I got 50 minutes of material here it is and um, and with this show I thought, I went back to a tweet that went semi-viral in Ireland. When I mean semi-viral, like a hundred people liked it. And I was like, I've never used that in stand-up before. And it was about seeing two women fight each other in aquaerobics. And I thought, well, that's such a mad situation. And surely there must be so much that I can do on that. And, um, and then, you know, the more you develop the show, the less and less that story became part of the show but I had written all the blurbs to be about aqua aerobics.
0: Ah, of course, I'm only remembering the blurb just now. Yeah, Yeah, of course. Yeah.
1: So, I am in a bit of a, so I'm I'm, I'm at a bit of a crossroads now at the moment, and it's like, um, because I have a director, and I've been talking to other people, other directors, and other, like my boyfriend is, uh, he's a director, like he directed like my play and stuff, and, um, the reason why he doesn't direct my shows is because we're boyfriend and girlfriend and you can't really you can't <laughs> you can't really take uh, notes off someone you have sex with like it's not uh, <laughs> I will withhold if <laughs> you know If <laughs> so so like uh, but so I have a, an official like lady I go to Lois uh, Walsh with a whiteboard and we work on it each week but it's just I'm at a kind of crossroads with it because I'm like I wanted to talk about loads of stuff in it, and then I realised the coil bit. There's a uh, there's a bit about the coil I, in it. I, hope you, this is, I don't think this yeah. is spoiling anything for anyone, um, and that is like twenty five minutes at this stage. And I really like it. and I think it's really funny, and I think it can fit in generally with what I want to talk about, which is like advocating for my own comfort. I think is essentially what the show is about. I thought it was about violence and PTSD because I have those not not well you know uh, 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 yeah it's very I'm going through therapy at the moment Stu for like CPTSD which is complex PTSD and the kind of therapy they give you is that you have to go through the traumatic memory again and again and again and you're all, you're looking for a different perspective and it's always like and essentially what happened is you got out of it alive or whatever and like I realised what I was what I've been traumatised by was stuff that I've done stand up about in the past and so I'm going through therapy, talking to this, my therapist going, uh, and this happened. And then in and another part of my brain is gone, and the punchline goes here. And this is the setup, but it's actually like a real story. And so I've been trying to approach my show differently this time. And also, I think a big thing for me is like, I go, oh, I, I say, I, I grew up... uh. I grew up in quite a like a I've had I've had a life do you know what I mean so like I find uh I find that I tell people stuff and they're like no Alison that's bad you know and I'm like no is that not what everyone does all the time And they're like no that was assault Alison I'm like okay like you know so like it's been like uh it's been a journey of like Doing stand-up and uh, also trying to make myself well not through stand-up. I think I thought I could before, but I think I finally accepted that that isn't a thing. Yes,
0: know? okay. Um, so, with just to, just to hover uh, as much as it's useful oh, to, yes. for you to do so on the kind of PTSD thing at the moment. Mm-hmm. I, I have a little experience of the kind of the therapy, as you said, it's about... It's almost like reframing the event, thinking your way back through the traumatic event, and putting yourself on the outside of it, observing it, and reminding yes. yourself, "Yes, that bad thing did happen, and what happened was everything was all right in the end." And trying yes. to reinforce that. And I'm interested, just sort of, kind of, conceptually, I suppose. I'm interested in in whether there is a relationship between that and re-describing an event for the stage, because that does that doesn't sound a million miles away from mm. doing comedy about a thing. And I, I'm pretty sure I have... I mean, it's it's absolutely not the same. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, um, but I think there, there might be parallels because I think I've, I, I often write shows about problems that I have and afterwards they feel like they feel less of a problem because I've spoken about it. And, you know, I've almost done that thing of been standing there looking in on the situation. Now, mm. th- those things, I can only think of the one you know, I, I've had a very lucky life and I, I haven't undergone too many traumatic things. as a sort of big big car accident when I was a kid and that was very, oh, very nice. scary. And that was, yeah, but it, but you know what I mean? There weren't any yes. dicks involved in it. You know I mean? wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't it like, wasn't horror. Obviously I as a child felt horror. I worried that my family had died and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, of course. But, but it was kind of, it, there was no sleaze in it. So it's a very different type of thing to I imagine a lot of the trauma that, that people process. Mm-mm. But it, it did strike me that there is a, a parallel... Between between kind of standing outside and reliving and describing Mm. and what stand-up is.
1: Yeah, I think there is parallels between that. And I I think like... So my relationship with therapy is like when I was 13 years old, and I think I've said this loads of times, I actually did it in stand-up. It was like one of my first... I think it was like one of my first hours or the second hour, was that I just... I just was in the kitchen of my mum and she had a potato and I think the potato fell on the ground and I had, like, some sort of... I had some sort of episode where I just, like, started punching this hot potato into the floor until like the, the, it was a jacket potato and it became like almost like a boxing glove. And I was just mashing it into the floor. And mum was like, what the hell is wrong? And I was like, I actually, I actually don't know. I turned around and then they got me into therapy. I was very lucky because I had like a mental breakdown when the economy was booming. It was like Ireland was doing great. <laughs> the, the the Celtic Tiger was uh, really roaring. And my school was able to afford to bring in like a specialist. And like um, every, you know, every week I would go for German class and I would go and do my therapy. And, you know, the kids in class would be like, oh, where are you? Where are you going? And I was like, well, I'm going to therapy because blah, 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 this or whatever. And I never felt ashamed of it and they weren't they weren't weird of me or anything they were like oh yeah cool whatever and I've always kind of like had that attitude then from then on because and also like where I grew up is a village the village is lovely I have no problems I don't know why I'm preface I'm preface <laughs> this
0: speaks volumes <laughs>
1: yeah <laughs> I have no problems very much have a lot of uh, problems with it but like you know none that I'm like you know if you're listening to this and you're from my village and you're like is it about me let's say no you're fine you approach me it'll be grand but I am um, I did grow up in like a the, the society I grew up in a council estate in the middle of a village and it felt almost like, it felt almost like the world in a very smaller world. Like you just knew the way that things worked within the village. Like, um, you know, uh, just like some friends weren't allowed to come to my house, uh, because of where my house was, even though my, like, it really was fine. There was really no, no big issues with where I lived. And, um, and the thing is, like, uh, And I was into Morrissey and the Smiths and the Cure when I was younger, so the only thing I had in common with my local friends was smoking, and we'd smoke, and I would be as weird as I liked, and they just accepted that I was weird because they grew up with me. And I never, and when people tried to bully me, they couldn't because I would just be like, yeah, so? Like, what's your point? You know what I mean? Um... And I and I, it's weird that I have this weird relationship with shame that sometimes I really don't feel shame about a lot of stuff. Um, I feel shameless in so many ways. And then other times I feel really, really shameful about certain subjects. But it's definitely like coping mechanisms and just like growing up where I grew up and stuff.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's... um.
1: You're lucky to get me on my second day of my hangover. <laughs> it's where
0: I'm open. <laughs> <laughs> that's particularly reflective. Yeah. Yeah, it's... Um... And it is dangerous, isn't it? I think the thing is, like, and I know maybe more than most in my position as the unofficial quasi-untrained psychologist to the, uh, to the British and Irish comedy circuit, perhaps. Um, but, it, you know, I, I, like, it's really difficult to talk about some of these things in the, in, the, in the paradigm of comedy without being trite. Like, obviously, comedy isn't the same thing as therapy, and sometimes when those things are taken for granted as being the same thing that you can come a cropper I mean you you mentioned you talked about the potato incident in an earlier show Mm. do you feel like you did it justice did you feel like you had the gears comically at the time No.
1: no I've done nothing nothing have I have actually done justice I've actually jizzed up every really good story up against the wall because of uh Really, I really have. I'm looking at stuff, and there's stuff that I've done in other years that could give real good context to what I want to talk about now. Like, you know, um, in the, in this show now, and I'm like, I can't do that because I did it in that show. And it's uh, really frustrating once I've moved here. It's not like I'm saying, I, I think there are better comedians in Ireland than there are in the UK, so I'm not slagging off Ireland. I think, but but being here, I've just, my eyes have been opened, and I'm like, Christ, you really... You really had some bits there, Alison, that you could have made a fantastic show instead of, like, multiple shows with some good bits in it and maybe a good idea, but never... And, like, I've read reviews and, like, I really agree with them. Do you know? Like, looking back, I'm like, yeah, you're right. Like, it wasn't essentially that funny. Or she didn't know what she was talking about. Not to, like, focus on, like, middling reviews, but they're mostly what I've got. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? So, like... (laughs) It's hard and but the point actually I've just remembered of why I told you that I, I went to therapy when I was a teenager is it was all free for me and I couldn't you know I'm, I'm not um, when I left school it wasn't free and then I wasn't I wasn't well and then I started doing comedy and then when I started getting paid reasonably well that's when I started but it took years so comedy was definitely like a plaster on top of stuff to get stuff sorted. Um, yeah.
0: From what I know of you from your material and from other interviews and stuff I've read with you, Mm. your kind of journey into comedy required a lot more resilience than most
1: Oh yeah Oh yeah, like um, or how, well I'll tell you how I got into comedy, was that I I didn't have the concept of like enjoying stand-up or anything like that, I grew up in a rural area and um it just there was no comedy clubs where I was, and I remember Eddie Murphy raw I seen that, and i I only watched that because I really like Eddie Murphy as an actor, and I was like I'll watch this, and I saw a tommy tune in d v d on mute at a house party while music was on, so I could see him moving about, but like I didn't really you know uh watch stand up and um, but I did watch panel shows, I liked panel shows, so there was something there. And I worked in radio. The reason why I started working in radio was that when I was about 15, I sent in a text to a to a radio station. They were asking stuff like, who's your favourite actor? Or who's your favourite character that's been played by multiple actors? And they were looking for, like, Batman and Superman and stuff like that. And I said, well, it's all soap children because as soon as they reach puberty, like, the child actor is, you know, thrown out and then, like, someone of abs is brought in. And... I got a phone call from that radio station. They said, "Do you want to come on air and talk about that?" And I was like, "Yeah," because I've nothing. That was the most exciting thing to ever happen to me in my life. So I had to run out to the basketball court in my estate because that's where you got phone reception. And all of my mates were in my sitting room with the radio on, listening. <laughs> and then I went on the radio, and I was talking. It was great. And then they they rang me again. They're like, "Would you like to review films uh, for us?" And I was like, "Yeah, yeah, I'd love to." So they would send me out a check and I would have to like bring that check to a cinema, go watch a film. And I was about, I think I was about 15 or something like that. And I had to, they were on in the, they, they, they got moved to the afternoon and they brought me with them as their like film critic. And I left like every double maths class to go um, to go review films in the bathroom of my school. And then like a teacher after a few weeks was like, like you're leaving at the same time every time like what's going on and I was like I'm reviewing films on the radio and then she's like y- you could have just said you know like, this is not <laughs> you know this is not a crime <laughs> I was like, okay yeah no problem so I did that and I really loved radio and I thought I wanted to do radio that was what I wanted to do and I ended up getting work experience at a radio station where I had to shadow a DJ and we got talking during the songs and I did you know what? I told him about like he asked me why do you want to get into radio? I told him that story and I told him about the soap thing. He's like, Oh, come on and talk with me about the soap thing now after and so I did. And then the breakfast DJ came in and knocked in and said, Alison, do you want to come in earlier tomorrow and talk to us? And I was like, Yeah, okay. And then I had a meeting with them. Um and I thought it was because I libeled Ashley Cole on the radio. <laughs> <laughs> I was like really into my tort, like uh, libeled all the time. It was like a thing in college. Uh, but they said, do you want to, have you got a day off? Like when you're going to college? And I was like, yeah. So I, and uh, I went in every Friday and would go on the breakfast show and Bernard O'Shea, who's a comedian, told me I should try doing stand up. And I was like, okay, Cool. And then he said, Well, I, I'm organizing a gig. So, like, it's in two weeks. You got two weeks. You can write five minutes. Do your best joke uh, last. Do your second best joke first. And whatever you want to do in the middle. And I was like, Okay. So I wrote in my notebook and I was like asking. Oh, then I then YouTubed comedy. So <laughs> I was like looking up stand up and <laughs> trying to, because. I wanted to do it because the headliner was a guy called PJ Gallagher who was on a hidden camera show at the time, and I wanted to meet him and tell my friends I'd met a man off the telly, <laughs> and so I did the stand-up comedy to 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 meet him, and I did so I did the I did the show, and um, I asked people for advice and lots of like you know I'm like nineteen or twenty I think I'm twenty at the time, and. um you know all these older people were like yeah i've seen comedy and oh, I, some guy did some pedophile and suicide jokes and yeah really turned the crowd and all like that and for some reason i was like oh well that's what i got to do so <laughs> that was like my first joke was like a really hack very violent joke uh, and uh, and then a lot of anecdotes about my granny drinking and that was my first gig
0: and you and you wanted to uh... You wanted to do that joke specifically because you'd heard someone doing material like that hadn't gone down well, and yes. it turned the crowd so what was that what was that little kind of maverick <laughs> I think it was
1: like i think it was i think I thought I could do i do you know what it was do you know what it was I had no intention of ever continuing to do comedy. it was something that I was gonna do the once, and I know that sounds like real art that that i i I hate when people are interviewed and they're like. I didn't think anything would come of it or anything. You know what I mean? And you're like, you did, you really did. Like, let's not. But it wasn't, um, and it was, it wasn't because um, it was just because I was young. Uh, but I did it, and uh, the I think the Maverick thing. And, and do you know what? I got laughs. It did get mm-hmm. laughs. Mm-hmm. Looking back, I don't know how many laughs. Right? Because I left that I left that gig thinking I was a god of comedy. I was like, I am incredible, this is great. I'd never felt a feeling like it in my life. It felt like stronger than falling in love. It just felt like... I I, I have never felt it since, and I don't think I will. I think it's probably going to be... And it's very weird. It's very weird to know that. It's kind of very weird to know that you're never going to feel that exact same way again. But the endorphins and everything after, of just doing it and not not faltering or anything like that. I did get nervous directly before I was going on uh, because I was like because the audience made it real and they were like real people and I just didn't think of them really I was just because I was so in love with radio that was my ambition I just wanted to do radio this was like a challenge for content for radio it wasn't like you know so it's a yeah, it's like when someone from Blue Peter abseils. It's like, they're not doing it because they love abseiling. They're doing it for Blue Peter. And that was me. I, I saw it as abseiling in a way. and it. But the feeling I got from it was just nothing. Nothing ever will stand up to it in any and, way.
0: And was that was that the reason for the change then? Because presumably along the way you went, like, um, or, or did you? Did you think to yourself stand-up is actually better than radio or, or not? Yes. I mean, is it it's still a parallel for you?
1: Um, I think I had like, so my mum was very good. I'm fr- like, um, I'm very privileged. My mum would give me lifts to to go to places. Um, but I was working for that radio station for like two and a half years for free. You know, constantly on work experience. They were very nice. They would like get me like a Christmas. I remember one time I got like a little sneaky check because I was on the dough and they got me like a Christmas bonus and I bought a scooter out of that. And then I crashed a scooter into a wall because I was wanted to like drive and independence and stuff. Um, but eventually, I, I I was offered like a little job doing as uh, part-time radio work in Dublin, and they told me you have to move up to Dublin, so I moved up, and um, it was very very cheap rent. The person that's like most responsible for me. Where being where I am or doing comedy is Philip, my landlord at the time, who charged two hundred and fifty euro to live in a box room in Dublin, um, which was incredible. Like if I ever meet that man again, I really want to thank him yeah. because it was like the rent I was able to afford to be on the dole or be up on part time work and pursue comedy, and I moved up to pursue radio, but I wasn't getting as much work uh, as I needed, so I just started pursuing. Uh, comedy at night time, anyway, and it just comedy paid me quicker than radio did, so I just uh, stuck with comedy then.
0: What quality do you think it was that those people on radio recognised you had, or thought there's something there's something Alison's got that is why we'll invite her on this and on this and on this?
1: I'm a mad bastard, like, and that is <laughs> I am, and
0: that's
1: <laughs> that's been my identity. That's been the thing that's protected me since I was a kid. Like, you cannot mess with someone who wears blue tights. You cannot, they will, you know, you cannot demean me in any way. I will destroy you. There is nothing, there's nothing, uh I've, yeah, genuinely, genuinely, I think it is being a mad bastard. I am the mad bastard in my village. I am the mad bastard in my friend group, school, everything. And uh, I think comedy to a degree. <laughs> like, not in a, I don't know, uh, yeah, I, I, I think that is it. I think that is it.
0: And what, let's stay with that for a bit, yeah, please. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what is it? Where does it come from? How does it manifest? Is it a is it a, a defence mechanism of some sort? Is it like a, a sort of a heroic yeah. thing for you? Like, what is it?
1: Uh, it's probably a defence mechanism. Do you know what? I'll tell you this story. And it's like, it's a bit grim, but it's my, it's my first brush of comedy, really. It's like, when I was about eight, and um, so I moved to Ireland with an English accent, which was uh, a very big no, 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 you know, it wasn't like uh, the, it, w- it wasn't the troubles, but it was, it was something that I made a, I made a choice when I was a kid to get an Irish accent very quick and like, um, and also assimilate as quick as I could within the culture. My mum is Irish and like, uh, yeah, so I made a big choice about that. The only thing that I really kept, uh, from the UK was a uh, love of a uh, two-step garage which didn't really become big in Ireland a disgrace like uh so i remember i used to do um when i when i moved i moved around a lot when i was a kid uh from like germany to the uk to ireland and everything like, back and forth for ages. My dad was a builder. And when I was a young kid, I would no mates that were my age. They were all adults. So I would have adult conversations with people or I would just have no conversations. It was just the way it was. And then when I moved to this estate, my dad had a car crash. So we just knew we were staying, like, in this estate. You know, it was going to be the place where we put down our roots, like. So, like, I remember... I remember because i'd moved so much i i kind of got a shorthand of how to make friends quickly because there was just no point by the time i would by the time i would make friends i would move away again so i really needed to get it in and get it done quick and i i realized being funny was a easy way to do that so i would be as funny as possible also in my estate like uh like the lads would would beat up the girls no problem it was like a very equal society within that so i had to be really good with my mouth because like it was like uh it was just the way and i remember once there was this guy and he was cycling on a bike and we 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 were kind of enemies i don't know we were kids and i and i sang a song and i got the offspring pretty fly for a white guy was big at the time and I go pretty fly for a shite guy <laughs> and he stopped his bike and he goes what did you say and I was like uh and I started to run away but he pushed me with a force that like my face hit the con- concrete my teeth flew out <laughs> I had no teeth right and like my mum was going mad like with his dad and going like this child's been injured, and the dad was like, "Well, what did she say?" And then the boy recited the song, and then he was like, "See?" And he was like, "So I was like, that that is cancel culture in comedy, and that is, you know, that's true." <laughs> My freedom of speech was curtailed that day. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I I I realized the power of joke. As well. So I knew pa- the
0: power of jokes in that context was it got you hit.
1: Yeah, yeah, it did. It did. But it's definitely saved me. It's definitely like like uh I I I definitely have got out lots of scrapes through like uh through like joking and stuff and also going, This is silly. You know, like I remember these girls. Uh, my friend gave someone a blow job, this is years ago, and like he was a boyfriend of someone and the girls were like from this from another town. Yeah. And and the girls came up to us in a disco it was like, Your friend's like, you know, stolen my mate's boyfriend and I was like, lads, it's a blow job. Like why are we fighting over a blow job? <laughs> you know? And they were like, actually, yeah, and <laughs> it was kind of <laughs> we didn't fight. It was nice. So yeah, I've 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 definitely utilized it. In ways, Uh,
0: yeah. So this is Alison. She is just... She's just one of those people who is just like, she just has a shining light inside her as a comic and as a person. And uh, I'm so thrilled to have her on the show. We'll get much more into this conversation and you will continue, I imagine, to be furious that she has had to undergo quite so many hardships. And it's she's one of those things. I hope I'm not talking out of turn. She's one of those things. What a terrible sentence. She's This raises one of those issues and I hope I'm not talking out of turn here, I will bring this bring a sort of wider focus on this away from simply Alison, but understanding the sorts of things that she has been through as a newer comic, as a woman on the comedy circuit, and getting a sense of those things from someone who is so fearless and so candid as Alison, um, who's able to make amazing comedy out of them on stage, but also has really really underwent some really shitty things in real life. It does make me think, as it should, um, that how many other people are there out there who've undergone such shitty things, who don't have the outlet to talk to them as Alison does, who, who haven't yet found the strength or the, I don't even like to say it's about strength and courage and bravery. I, Alison has all of those things, but I, I don't think if you decide not to talk about the shitty things that happens to you, that means you're in any way devoid of strength, courage, bravery and all those positive qualities. My point is simply this. And I know that the audience of this show skews male, um, less than, than you might imagine actually, which is always quite satisfying, but. Let's just take a minute to think about how few how how infrequently I certainly let's talk about my experience I hear about these sorts of things on the comedy circuit from time to time I'm not often in dressing rooms anymore I'm not often I'm not really in any kind of comics WhatsApp groups which I believe are a huge thing about which I'm on the outside I don't really have my ear to the ground of comedy and I still hear about some horrible horrible things happening in the comedy industry which is an industry in which people are vulnerable and you know the the worst i had to put up with among the worst things i've had to put up with is a sort of general sense that in the early days of your comedy career people patronize you talk down to you and sort of exploit you because they are aware that you, that as new comics, you are very often kind of flaring with need. You need stage time. You're desperate for stage time. You'll, you'll kind of put up with a lot of sort of patronizing and, you know, people who are kind of lording it over you because they're, they're a little way into the industry and so, you know, treat you like shit basically. That's the worst of it that, that in regard to that I've ever had to, to put up with. Imagine for a moment just the volume. Look, I'm not telling you anything new here. This is all obvious. But it, when you, when you talk to someone as fearless as Alison, it really brings it home to me just how rich it's like a predator rich environment. Do you know what I mean? Because it's full of, in, in the same way that kind of predators after clubs and, you know, club nights out and what have you, they look for vulnerable people. People in comedy make themselves vulnerable in the early part of their careers, for sure. So you can get away with some genuinely atrocious behaviour. And I, individually and you individually, I'm sure, can't do anything about that whole problem. But we can keep having conversations about it, allowing ourselves to feel uncomfortable. It's much easier and more comfortable not to have conversations about it. And and keep listening and keep believing women. All right? I mean come on obviously but uh, I just I I was so shocked to hear about some of the the things and we we talked a bit off off mic as well about some of the horrible things that that go on in comedy about which I have had the absolute privilege of remaining not completely ignorant of but sort of largely untouched by And uh, and then you sort of just try and put yourself in the shoes of a female comic and just to recognise the need for WhatsApp groups and kind of underground networks where people warn each other about male comics and male promoters. Just I'm so lucky, so privileged that I have never had to go through that myself, much of that. So let's all keep listening, please. Thank you. I mean, it would be ghost to go from that to talking about extra material. But if you are uh, getting lots out of this conversation and you would like to hear more from Alison, then there is extra material available where you would normally expect to find it. We'll get straight back into the conversation. But you can follow Alison um at Alison Spittle on Instagram and Twitter. You can download her Wheel of Misfortune podcast. We'll talk about that in a little while as well. Go to AlisonSpittle.com, and you can see wet... At the Edinburgh Fringe. So, uh, I mean, I can tell you this now. It's tickets.edfringe.com slash what's hyphen on slash Alison hyphen spittle hyphen wet. But chances are you'll Google it, and I think that's probably easier. So, with all of that in mind, cannot recommend this show enough. It made me howl with laughter. Let's get back to Alison Spittle. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans.
1: I realised that, like, um, I love doing stand up comedy because it gives me like a sense of power, and I love. I I I think my favourite way to talk about things is like through stand up comedy. Do you know what I mean? Like anything, it's like um, when I when I when I talk about it, it's a conversation I'm having where people are listening, and I get to. You know, think about what I'm saying and what I'm doing, and also it's probably I don't know because when you're writing articles or when you're doing other stuff, you're like, oh, you have to do it within the form, and to be a good writer, uh, article wise, you have to have good grammar and make succinct points and stuff. And with 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 the stand up that I do, it's like I just like uh, you know. Saying what I like to say and remembering to do jokes.
0: Yeah, because a, you have to. Great. You it's it's less. I mean, there is obviously there is craft and form in in stand up, but also yeah. the most important thing is that you mean it. I think. Yeah. Or I mean, I don't know. I don't know whether that's we could pontificate as to whether that's more or less important than that they laugh. I guess the mm. laughing is really important as well. But you
1: can't argue with that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> but I think. I think you really have to mean it. I had a a good friend of mine, Jay, was my tech for a couple of years at at Edinburgh. And we had this arrangement whereby uh, they would take on, you know, you have like a person Friday at Edinburgh if you're doing a free fringe show to kind of be your micro (laughs) tour manager and everything. And the most important (laughs) thing that Jay did for me, as well as running the show in an excellent way, was we had this arrangement whereby they would come and say, before I went on, they'd just pop their head backstage and just go, just remember to mean it. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's so good. And I would walk on and mean it because that's the most important thing, certainly for me. It was very easy for me to kind of end up just wanting to please them. I think that's one of the biggest hurdles I have is a sort of desperate need to please them.
1: Oh, me too. Like with with comedy, especially when I'm talking about stuff, it's weird that I feel compelled to talk about stuff that scares me or I'm affected by but I'm also compelled to tell people that I'm also compelled to do comedy about that type of thing while also trying to please people yeah. so it's it's very weird it can be a weird mishmash sometimes of just what is the point of it <laughs> if I'm saying something uncomfortable while uh, being afraid of giving people discomfort yeah. and trying to like uh, it feels like it feels like I've a gun uh, with a shield turned inwards towards. so it's it's not it's not going to help anyone, really. It's describe just
0: like... describe that gun again. You've got a gun with a... I <laughs> want to visualise this because I like it.
1: Like a gun. A gun with a shield at the tip of it. So I shoot the gun but the bullet just goes back into the gun and hasn't affected anything oh, in any way. Yeah,
0: right, okay. You know? Oh, I, I don't know, I was, it's not the best analogy. I was visualising a shield with a gun pointing out of it. I think that's that That would seem good. That would
1: be great, well, wouldn't w- it?
0: Well, would it? Because you'd be great, <laughs> but you'd be a monster. You'd become a yes, monster. Yes, <laughs> that's
1: true. There's too many comedians like that yes. at the moment. Yes. When why are these people hurt?
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So something that uh, I was alluding to earlier on is that from the content mm. of some of your material that I've seen particularly this um, mm. the the show you did at, at Mac um yeah. is that I know you've been treated very poorly in comedy like you talk on stage about a specific kind of incident
1: Yeah, I do. Um I think I think it's for me um um let's for me, as a person, um, for me as a person, okay. So, it's it's very strange because when I've been doing comedy a while, and um, I didn't understand. I don't think there are clear set out rules about how you go about doing comedy and dealing with people. And if someone was weird with me, I would just say it because I would be like, "That person's very strange, and that's very strange behavior." And when I um I kind of found myself, um, you know, I started comedy when I was twenty one, and I was fresh out of like I'd never been to a comedy club. I just had I was a I was a baby. I look back at myself and I was like, "You were you were a very naive, uh, young young woman," and um. Uh, yeah, I, I've had these like experiences with different people within comedy. I'd say about like, I could count it on one hand. So it's not even that big. And I think, you know, I've been going at it a while that I don't think it's, uh, and it, I don't think it's a, uh, and I know I'm qualifying this, aren't I? Everyone always qualifies stuff by God. You know, stuff happened to me, but not as much as other people or whatever. And mm. um, I love doing comedy. It's my favorite thing to do. Uh, sometimes I complain about it, but it's only, it's only like um one percent, you know, zero 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 point one percent. It's just people hold on to that, and I know that like when I do interviews, when I do interviews with newspapers, I did a, I did an interview with a newspaper during lockdown, and June, the first uh June of the first lockdown, quite a lot of people got outed in Irish comedy as predators, hmm. um. On Twitter, and we were all stuck inside, and I just went a bit mad, and I was just so angry at, you know, what had happened to other people, and it it just felt like it felt all encompassing, that like I did an interview, to promote my tour that was going to happen in Ireland, which I felt was going to happen that year, but of course COVID yeah. put a kibosh to it, and uh, the interviewer asked me about um you know um, abuse in comedy and I just told her the truth I didn't have my guard up I just told her I just told her everything just absolutely everything that had happened to me or that I'd heard and you know she couldn't even print half of it which is you know totally understandable because it's quite strong uh, libel laws and uh I forgot about it I vented and I left it and I felt like uh, I never even gave it a second thought and then when I was getting my photo shoot for that interview the the photographer had Johnny Cash hurt on as his like inspirational song and asked me to hold my hat You know, hand up to my chin and I'm like what did I say in that interview like it must have been grim like I didn't jeez because because
0: that's the music they've chosen to accompany like they've read the interview this is quite smart work in a way from the photographer they've read the interview and chosen some music to get you into the spirit of the interview sort of quite smart work arguably a bit of a like you should check (laughs) with someone before you do that to them
1: I was like oh god I have to promote my tour (laughs) and it's like (laughs) and they're picking the press and stuff it felt like a photo shoot of someone who had got like um, you know only three monster munch in a packet of multi-pack crisps and they were disappointed by it <laughs> and the local paper takes a thing takes a picture of them looking sad beside that monster munch so it was like that so I did so I, I, I have been like out uh, outspoken a bit about it and then I kind of ret- retreated because um, because 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 I was outspoken about it people would approach me and talk to me about it and other people have been fantastic and trying to set up uh workshops and stuff and doing something practical because it feels it it feels like a problem with no practical solution to it you know and it feels like and also I don't want to be a person that goes you have to behave yourself to other people I feel I feel that like it's definitely changed uh Some people's attitudes towards me and I don't blame them. And it's very, it feels very weird. Um, in that respect. So, uh, I realized that the only way that I can fully communicate about stuff that, um, I feel passionate about or whatever is through stand up. It's like, it's like when, when I get a lot of my stand up is about me being mentally ill and it's so weird because I feel so free talking about it. And happy and then when an interviewer and of course it's not I'm not saying in any way that the photographer or the journalist or anyone is wrong in any capacity because if you're offering that in- in- information why would they not talk want to talk to you about it uh, but I feel like incredibly uncomfortable talking about like mental health stuff when it's like in an interview yeah. but when i do stand-up i'm like oh blah 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 i'm like this and um i feel free when i do it and i realize like i re- i think i've realized that i should just talk to my therapist do stand-up comedy and uh yeah and 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 talk about and and i'm happy to talk about it with you in the interviews and stuff but it is it's so weird my comfort levels yeah. I've, I've fully realized like why i like comedy
0: there's, th- there's something about that, isn't there? I wonder if part of it is simply that the game of stand-up comedy is mm. like trying to make people laugh, you know, like trying to tell the truth, trying to, trying to be yourself, trying to make people laugh, if that is the kind of comedy one's into, uh, one practices. It's almost like the, because there is the, the, the mission of they have to laugh, it yeah. takes you out of yourself and lets you kind of take a step back from the stuff you're going through and be Mm. able to process it differently. It seems like it's a very different, of course, it seems obvious to say, it's a very different situation talking honestly about your mental health to a therapist as it is to a friend, as it is to an audience. Because the audience, the fact of them jolts you out of it into a sort of, I'm now going to use my stand-up skills, which I've honed over the years to enable me to say things and chop them up and frame them and frame them for maximum comic effectiveness. Mm-hmm. dramatize them if you like you're making those decisions in the moment so you're but you're doing that with your real life and maybe stuff that you haven't yeah. finished processing yet
1: oh all the every show I've done prob yes yeah, definitely including this show I am talking about stuff that I haven't processed yet but if it, this sounds I maybe it's not healthy or whatever but when I've processed it I don't find the urge to to write about it yeah because it's it's been processed and it's done and it's a finished product or whatever I've, but wait when i do stand up about it i i've got like i've got like curiosity about why i feel this way or is this normal or whatever so when i do stand up about it god i just read really, i can feel it in my chest how much i love stand up like just talking about it's the best thing that ever happened to me in my life like like swear to god it's brilliant uh, that's a bit that's very sincere <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Helen Barrow will be sitting at home listening to this going no stop being sincere I <laughs> know
1: <laughs> and it's weird because like uh, uh, I hate sincerity in other people but yeah I can't help but be sincere myself
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, well there we go it's a cage it's a cage that we're it all is. in is it I mean one of the issues with working out stuff on stage, working through stuff on stage yeah. is that you know they say we like in, in terms of like a breakup show people sort of say mm. don't do the breakup show until you're over the breakup because then you can look back and talk about the stuff. That's one school of thought. Another yeah. school of thought is be in the middle of it. You know, be in the middle of it, work it out, it's raw, it's kind of less maybe less easy to make a Netflix special of, less easy to, (laughs) you know, chop it up and put it on the internet. But But it is still its own, like, there is value, isn't there? The act of talking about a thing to people... You know, there is a crowd, there is overlap. You know, not stand-up is not simply... It's a very broad church, isn't it? There's overlap between stand-up mm. and theatre and a one-person show and a monologue and a conversation and therapy and all these other sorts of things. How do you safeguard yourself? How do you keep yourself safe whilst talking about something like this horrible perpetration, this horrible event that was perpetrated upon you by mm. an abusive person?
1: I... It's a uh, it's a weird line. Like uh, I think the thing I do when I approach, like cause I'm starting to do it in club sets now. Uh, so this, this like, particular within, story, we're, yeah. being, we're being
0: vague about we're, it for several vague, reasons, but, but yeah,
1: yeah. In the in my new show, wet. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, which was originally genuinely about aquarobics and yeah, now there's yeah. nothing <laughs> a, there was nothing about it in that now I'm even going to cut I did a preview yesterday and I was chatting to someone they were like why do you talk about aquarobics for two minutes and I was like because of a blurb there's no other reason
0: <laughs> but, so then, that, but I, then that's you know that's the great thing about stand-up is the problems of material so now you've yes. got your intro to the show here's why I won't be talking about aquarobics <laughs>
1: Um, but like uh, yesterday, I was doing like a a new material. Like I was doing fifteen minutes at a night. I was allowed to do like new material at, and I was doing I was doing the last section of wet which is like, um, I want to make funnier <laughs> and also, uh, make sure that I tell the story in a way that I don't. I feel I feel okay with it, you know. Um, because there's a lot of stuff I've done stuff, uh, stand up boys like about being robbed about being flashed and all these kind of things that definitely played on my mind that now and you are right about the school of thought thing it's like now I look at it and I'm like maybe I could have done this a few years after I was over it and it would have been a better joke or whatever but it's like I wanted to talk about that at the time and with this element it's about uh the story is basically about a thing that happened to me when I in my early days in comedy and, and someone was quite like inappropriate I would say and um, to do to do that yesterday I, I went up to the audience I was like, I don't have time for you to trust me so I'm just going to do this and you're just going to have to accept it and they did and I felt good about that like it was just like trying to get it done um, and I really I really love how long I've been doing stand up that like these fears that you have about you know you have to do a bit really good material at the start so they trust you some old material and then get into your new material or whatever and it felt kind of like good but i've totally i think i forgot what question you were asking at the start there <laughs> I was, so we'll, well, i'll get a quick read
0: <laughs> <laughs> i was ta- i was talking about how you safeguard yourself how you protect yourself emotionally when you are oh. working through stuff whether it is simply you are kind of naked and wriggling like the nerve in a tooth you just kind of go yes. Well, this is it we're just going to you're going to go through this with me as I work it out or yeah. whether there is a way because you have to do this multiple times multiple nights whether there mm. is a way of and there may not be an answer to it but I you know yeah. whether there is a way of of kind of safeguarding your emotional core as yeah. you go through some difficult stuff in the pursuit of a story, which is very funny. It's very, it's mm. a great bit. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Like, yeah, it's, yeah, it's much yeah. more than that. And I think yeah. by saying, you know, you, I think you you are, I think when you describe it as like someone said, someone did or said something inappropriate, I mean, that's the tip of the fucking iceberg. But, you know, yeah. we, we're not going to talk about necessarily the content of it so much as a horrible thing happened to you mm. and... You talk about it in a very, you know, and you make it very funny, and it's very powerful. Mm. We presumably, the audience need to know you're okay, or do the audience need to know you're okay? But you need to know you're okay. You can't go on and do this night after night without making sure that you're okay.
1: Yeah, I'm. I'll, I'll be totally honest with you. Uh, no, I haven't have any safeguards at the moment. I'm try I think that there's a thing of. I kept telling myself, like, years ago <clears throat> about... Wait there. I've got something in my throat. I definitely am not going <laughs> to <laughs> It's very embarrassing. Uh. Um, wait there. So, uh, no, I don't have any safeguards in... Um, I, I started making money at stand-up and then started paying for therapy. And I kept thinking... Like one day I'm gonna be fixed, and then I can just do stand up uh, without kind of talking about uh, traumatic things. Because like my podcast is about. Originally, I was gonna call the podcast Wheel of Trauma. Like it was, and I think a lot of my writing, everything I did a play, I wrote a play, and everything has kind of been about like little nuggets of tiny bits of trauma that stick with me. Then then it sticks with you long enough that you get to see jokes in it. You know, and it's like funny to me. And I remember when I was growing up and, uh, something, something heavy enough happened. I'm so bloody vague about stuff. Something heavy happened. And in school, uh, people, people were asking me questions about it. And I just joked and I just, uh, and it kind of deflected and made it better. And people kind of like, it didn't really change my life that much because, I was able to like do my own PR in a way of going, I'm not that bothered about it. So therefore, um, therefore you shouldn't worry about me, you know, friends yeah. or whatever. Yes. And I think I'm doing that with an audience as well of like delivering stuff that does affect me because I am talking about it and I am thinking about it a lot, but it it, it does feel like I treat an audience almost like a larger set of friends where I go, oh, I've had a breakdown, but don't worry because, you know, I found this aspect of it really funny or that aspect of it really funny. Um, so, yeah, so I think a lot of my stand-up shows have been like that before. But this one is like that, but with structure. So <laughs> I'm very... I'm working hard on this and trying to get it ready and I feel... I actually feel very proud of it. So it's kind of like... It's been... It's been nice. I don't know. I know one show I did. I think it was like discovers Hawaii or something. I had a big, big. I had a big, big cry for the last seven days of it, and it was essentially because I was like reliving this memory of a man in my house, like who had broken in, and like I, I, I think it was like because the end of the run was happening, and when I would talk about it, I wouldn't feel scared because it was a performance. So I was like, the performance is bigger than the memory itself. And I think I could see the end run with the, with Edinburgh itself. And I was like, well, this is just going to go back to a memory and not actual, uh, material. But I've been to therapy, starting out that one. That one's great. That one's gone now you know <laughs> that, that, that so one's gone gonna...
0: now that's great because that is a beautifully <laughs> complete circle I thought that when you first mentioned I started to make enough money from comedy that I could afford to go to therapy and yeah. isn't that the dream isn't that yes. like the end <laughs> the end of the movie of the archetypal <laughs> the hero's journey of stand-up I, I made enough money from stand-up I could afford the therapy and
1: genuinely then... <laughs> genuinely because I've been in therapy since I was 13 and I, I couldn't afford it when I was a young adult and then I started doing stand up and then you keep at it long enough you can afford to get that therapy so yeah (laughs) there's a full journey
0: (laughs) something you said earlier on which is that idea about going back to old stories and feeling like you've used up things in previous shows where you maybe didn't have the the wherewithal at the time or the experience so that you know the the tools to get the most out of them that's curious to me because I think I, I I totally know what you mean but and I've had a sort of, I suppose I've felt the same thing, but it's interesting hearing it come out of someone else's mouth. Mm. Immediately, I'd sort of go, you can do what you want. Comedy's I the one know. job in the world where you can do precisely what the fuck you want.
1: I know, and, the you know, the room, uh, it's not like I've done this to massive rooms. There've been like, you know, 12 people or whatever have been in the room listening to these anecdotes, and it could give... you know what? <laughs> if... Uh, if I have to make a big change to the end of the show, maybe I'll I'll put in an old story to <laughs> give the other bits context or whatever. Um but yeah, there are bits So I did a bit about being robbed, and that is what I'm going to therapy for. And like I changed a bit because it wasn't palatable to audiences to hear like so the man basically I came into my house and a man was upstairs. I was alone and he came down. I didn't know it was him. I thought it was my landlady, but he came down with like a pillowcase over his face and he had a knife. And oh in the show, God. I don't talk about the knife because I found, I found that people did what you did there. Yeah. You know what I mean? And like, it was essentially about the joke was that like, even though I was in this like very, very scary situation, he asked me for car keys and I babbled to him and I was like, well, I tried to learn how to drive when I was 15, but I couldn't work the clutch. And like that there was a because he he, I don't think English was his first language. So there was this like communication issue between us. And, you know, even though like he was communicating by having a knife, I was trying to like talk to him about my traumatic um, driving lesson when I was 15. And it was kind of like about that. And like people were like, oh, but when I when I when I just didn't mention the knife, people were a lot more uh, accepting of it. And I get that, you know, because it's actually like, you know, sometimes I look back at stuff and I'm like, Jesus, Alison, did you have to tell him that? Or like, why can't you just like sometimes I do stuff and I'm like, "Uh, yeah, I don't know what the line is of, like, comfort comfort for the audience. And I'll try and comfort them in different ways when I could just hold back bits of information would be better. And I've learned that with that show. And it, it would probably help me more for this show if I could give some sort of context of, like, this is why I am the way I am. uh, You know, and it might help with, like, I think, if we're talking, I'm, I'm, like, I'm going to try and talk about the show without spoiling it for people, but it is a, you know, this is the thing I've sent you. It's like there's a middle bit where I'm kind of talking about being young and doing something that, like, I wasn't like totally comfortable with or whatever. And it's that kind of thing of like, I just, uh, I just do, I'm, I do stuff to please people all the time. I, even with comedy, and I and I kind of wanted to like talk about that. And yeah. it's just, uh, it's very. It's not a club. It's not a club bit. The coil bit is a club bit. Like yeah. I could do that outside of the show. The other bits I can't. I've done it in Ireland. Like I've got twenty minutes of that, and I do it in Ireland um, when I'm headlining and stuff. Because there are people that come to see me, and that's very comforting to like be able to go. Well, here's the bit that's not my club bit, and I'm trying to make it sharper. So here you are. Mm-hmm. Um. So yeah, it is. It is learning about like storytelling, but trying to like understand what deals are what I what details are actually important and also I shite on for a long time about stuff that isn't important to the story and it has been a big issue with my with my with my stand-up like I, I'm talking to you and I'm saying like all of my flaws but I do think I'm funny so oh, it's like 100%.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, a hundred percent
1: yeah yeah.
0: this is why I'm always I'm trying to get better now at the beginning of the episode of pointing <laughs> out I'm having this person on the show because I consider them to be genuinely excellent yeah, yeah you know what I mean? like yeah, you are yeah. very very funny and one of of the things that was so exciting, and I didn't know if this was informed by uh, Wheel of Misfortune or oh, yeah. or exactly what, but I felt like it was one of those gigs where you sounded surprised that it was so full, and I thought, oh, is this is it kind of breakthrough time for Alison Spittle? Is it like the yeah. fan base? Is it one of those kind of critical mass moments where you seem to be, and with the content of the show as well, you seem to be very comfortable sharing deep stuff making it funny and being championed by the crowd in a way that I was like oh right or maybe it's from you know maybe it's from just gigging for a long time picking up your own audience the TV stuff the Guilty Feminist you know like there's like your audience feels knit together now it feels like oh that's an Alison Spittle audience yeah more so than it might have did you am I barking at the wrong tree there or is that you were not that you were not
1: at all and the Wheel of Misfortune like the Guilty Feminist changed my life in regards to getting audiences in
0: Okay,
1: and like with Edinburgh I'd be like who's here from the Guilty Feminist do quick like you know people pop up with their hands it's three quarters of the crowd like wow. so it is like it is it's, um, brilliant with wheel of misfortune it's a smaller amount of people because it's not the the massive like you know juggernaut that is the guilty feminist uh but the people that listen to wheel of misfortune get me better than anyone yeah. because i think they share that kind of like feeling of like i think fern put it best like what she said because I think sometimes people can misunderstand because there was like a Daily Mail article about us and it was calling us Pure Isle and stuff. And it is, you know, there are stories about people like shitting themselves and like wiping their arse with the Game of Thrones map uh, in in like Lewisham or something at a bus stop. Uh, but it's not about how disgusting it is. It's about the grimness of it and like finding joy in that. And like, you know, you know I could tell you, I tell you like it's weird like with this like, podcasts and it's like I've cried earlier and stuff. Uh but essentially I'm very happy, you know? Yeah. And like stories like that and like uh where where everything is just grim but you get that like it's it's the cliche to say that people have the best laughs at funerals or whatever. But it is like that is like if I didn't find stuff funny then like you know, what's the point? Yeah. Jesus <laughs> <laughs> so like yeah so with the with the podcast it's been really really great and like when me and Fern came out of lockdown uh, and the a gig we did together and it was crazy people were like getting like autographs and like they had to make a queue it was so weird I was like Jesus because we, we came together in that because basically it was like oh everything is gone like my whole Irish tour was gone and I was like crying to Fern, and then Fern was like, Oh, well, yeah, that's fine. And she did her whole tour, went and like, uh, we used to send each other voice notes all the time of like, I've done this, I've done that. And like, her relationship with Shame is very similar to my relationship with Shame. And we would make each other laugh so much that we would like, uh, we thought we might have monetized this, uh, for, <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh,
1: for a podcast. And we did. And like, when Fern left, like, it was the most amicable breakup of a podcast because she's my best friend. She she is my best friend actually, in the world. And like the kind of like friendship I have of her was like something that I would never want to jeopardize in any way for anything. Not even a not even a podcast on BBC Sounds. <laughs> so and you know she's able to advocate for herself and her comfort and her. You know it really was driving her like she 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 far about it loads and stuff, and I didn't want to be the cause I didn't want our friendship to be the cause of something that like she loved doing the podcast, but she was just basically too successful, you know what I mean, and something I had to give and uh, like so and that's a great reason do you know yeah. what I mean that's in like, it like it's like a soap exit instead of like dying in a car crash you get a call when when (laughs) someone's won the law and has left Walford and you're like good for them and like that's essentially what happened and like uh, yeah so it's good to do it with like guests and everything it's quite nice and they all bring something different uh yeah, I'm excited. We're we're recording a new series like like later this week and stuff, so it's pretty pretty fun to do. And you're like yeah. okay, we got Maisie Adam or we got Kerry Katona and it's like, Oh my god <laughs> It's gonna be great <laughs> <laughs> You should get her on the podcast. She's very funny, Kerry Katona.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. I don't really I mean I sort of know I think I feel like I know who she is, but I've no idea.
1: Oh, she's a lady she out is. of a. Uh, she was married to Brian McFadden, and she was out of a uh, atomic kitten, and she's the. Yeah, again,
0: lady. <laughs> I, I sort of know what those things are, but I don't. I don't think... <laughs> <laughs> but then I've, 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 I think I feel quite snooty sometimes. I've, I've sort of quite <sighs> deliberately. Disengaged with a lot of popular culture over the course of my life because I didn't feel like I liked the people who liked it, but they oh, might not have fair. been. They were just they were just the people who were around me. They might not have been representative of people generally.
1: I did that. I did that work for. Uh, I I've done that for a comedian. What's his name? He's a really really good comedian. I've laughed at his bits lately. He's dead. He's okay. very dead. In the nineties, he died, and he was like a smoker. Okay. What's his name? He wore a leather jacket.
0: Uh, uh oh, Bill Hicks. Yes, I. <laughs> that took me a Bill ridiculous Hicks. amount of time to get. Yeah, to, I, I was coming at it from a very weird way round. Yes, fair enough.
1: Um, I comedian. Uh, <laughs> I don't know why I'm telling you like all of my comedy trauma stories, but like, <laughs> so like there was this guy years ago. It was my first ever gig outside of like Dublin. Uh, it was like, and it was a hotel overnight stay. The headliner, he doesn't do comedy anymore. Used to wear like a leather jacket. Was really into Bill Hicks, and like. He, I got into the car, and he he said, "You're really fat from the back." And I was like, "What?" And I turned around and I was like trying to be like jokey with him. And he's like, "Sorry, I just say stuff as I see." It, it was a real truth teller, oh. this bloke. But he was a truth teller who died on his hole. He died. He was like he really a very. He was in a very rural part of Ireland. He was doing all these terrible jokes. Like he used to do this joke about like needing like two lungs for a It was a I think it was a like a definite. Uh, bite of another person's joke but shitter and he he came up to me like he was in my basically I'm that repressed Stuart that there was this guy who looks really like Ronnie O'Sullivan who is my ultimate ideal man like I love if I could like if I could marry an eyebrow I would I love a strong eyebrow on a man like it's just incredible and this guy looked like him and I did comedy and like we and I think I think we were gonna shag I think like it was definite vibes and like uh, I was very inexperienced and stuff and I thought well if I invite everybody up to my hotel room everybody would eventually leave and then like me and this guy could do stuff yeah. um, but the 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 headliner like would not leave my bedroom and he slept in one of the beds and like it was so oh. funny because the Ronnie O'Sullivan guy left like a bit cause it was, like five in the morning and the guy tried to wake me up, he's like, Alison, Alison, the headliner, he's like, You're actually you've got a beautiful face for a fat girl. Like I just oh want to tell you that And God. I was like Shut. <laughs> <laughs> But like he's not he's not a person that I like, you know, need it's funny. It's just very it's just very I don't want this podcast to be but like, like that everything I don't wanna be like and this person did me wrong and this person did me wrong.
0: I, I don't but, think it comes across like that at all. i mean, all I'm thinking is like yeah. I really I I sort of want to... Obviously, lots of newer, newer comics and people who might one day be comics listen to this show. Yes, uh, which and it's really in,
1: not like that. Like, genuinely, yeah, well, I'm very unlucky. Like, Well, it's I not. don't know.
0: I don't know. I mean, I, I worry because I don't, like... I'm not exposed to a lot of this stuff. And I, you, obviously, the you know, we, we hear the most awful stories because they, you know, they are themselves w- worth telling. It's like all the bad news in the world, isn't it? You know, the yes. bad news makes the front yes. page. But, you know, obviously this kind of stuff happens. Is there any way... Like, <laughs> I often ask people, what advice would you give a younger comic? Like, what advice would you give to people listening to this and thinking, fuck, I'm not going to go near stand-up comedy? Because... <sighs> Like, it, I hear these stories and I think, we should just burn it down. This is unsavable. <laughs> um, I think, like...
1: I think, like... It's definitely, definitely got way better, like, lately. And it's because more women are doing it and stuff and more people that are not white, straight men, to be honest. Like, uh, I'm not saying that... Yeah, I and I think if you're a white, straight man and you take offence to that, it's not you... <laughs> i'm talking about but it's like i think it's like getting different people to do comedy i think i definitely was like uh you know because i was like very young when i started and i was like very naive from the countryside and stuff and just like i think people thought that they could i think people thought they could get away with it because i think i think i looked like a bit of a runt of a litter and it was like it'd be fine so I think, like, if you're doing comedy and, uh, you know, uh, my advice is if someone flashes you from the back of the room with a light, get off stage. Uh, do your best joke last. And also, just do it. If, if being worried about, what, like, about creeps and comedy. There are creeps in every aspect of society. There is no, there is no, um, there is no industry without creeps. I promise you. Um, and if... You let them win if you don't do it. Do it, like, because they will be flushed out. They are, they are like pieces of shit, uh, in milk. And it's like we need to get more milk in, so <laughs> so shit isn't noticeable. You know.
0: <laughs> well, it is. I mean, there is at least that that kind of positive element, which is that things do feel like they're changing. Like there is, so, there are so many more female comics now. Brilliant, brilliant female comics. Yes. And, and I'm not going to be sh- involved and in shit tr- ones, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, and shit ones. Lots yeah. of shit male comics, lots of, lots of brilliant male comics. But it does feel like so much more of an even spread now. Loads more black and minority ethnic comics. Yes. And, and it just feels like there is... It feels like it, we've undergone a sea change.
1: Totally, totally. And it's not my... And the the other thing is like, uh, don't don't worry about it, just do it. Because like, I wasted so much of my talent on my time worrying about it and like no don't do that like just continue and do it
0: so what's the relationship between the mad bastard Mm. and the kind of the vulnerability and the 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 (laughs) the runt of the litter in your words you know that that, that the people's preconception that they could push you around yeah what what's the what's that what's that dynamic like how do you feel more powerful or more vulnerable
1: I feel more powerful because like I feel like I feel like I definitely when I was younger changed myself to like assimilate into society, and then I was like, no, fuck that, like just don't do that because like you know going the reason why I'm going through like p t s d therapy and stuff is to like you know I've changed my life so much to facilitate my fears. And it's, like, it's definitely, like, had a a negative effect. And I don't want that anymore. And I don't want to be, like, it's not helped me to be scared. It hasn't stopped bad things happening. So it's just, like, essentially, I just, uh, with comedy and with life, it's, like, I want to walk down the street late at night uh, on my own and feel okay I want to be in my house and hear a noise and go oh that's a mouse or something like that like I want that and I want to do comedy and I am doing comedy in a way that I feel safe and I feel respected and I think I was approaching stuff in a really weird way where I wanted I thought I associated like respect with safety I think And, like, I can't control what people do. So I just have to keep doing it because, like, I won't... I think I heard... I think it's definitely probably Josie Long has said this because it feels like a Josie Long saying. And if it isn't, then I invented it, and that's great. But something in the back of my head said Josie Long said this. Like, like, I won't let them take the whimsy from me. I think it's powerful to be yourself. And, like, you know, like... My mouth has gone all weird. (laughs) But I'm proud of myself. I am, and like if I wasn't me, I'd be like she's so cool, <laughs> and like, <laughs> and like that's that's how I want to live my life. I think, like, and I've definitely held it back.
0: What's the worst piece of advice anyone's ever given you? Like, oh, what's, so What's much. a bit of what's a bit of comedy advice someone gave you that you now realise was completely wrong?
1: Oh, oh, that women are women are your rivals essentially. You know, like when I. Did, did someone I'm say really that not, to you? Did, someone huh? give you?
0: did someone say that to you? Did they give someone you that? Someone said advice? to
1: me, you were the best female comedian on tonight. And I did. And I think it was like the second gig I ever did. And I did essentially go to myself for the first couple of years, I want to be the best female comedian. And that really. Uh, and I didn't meet many female comedians. Like, cause we weren't on the same night. It's not no, and it's no drag on anything. It's not like I'm going back in my day. It was terrible or whatever. You know, it's just the way it was. Uh, and uh, yeah, so that wasn't advice, but uh, uh, but I did take that to heart a lot. And also, I got told like I used to really and like with the sh- with the show and how I'm starting. And it now it's like about how like I would hold on to compliments and stuff. And I think when people give me compliments of stuff. I take that as a well I must make that my whole personality then. You know, if you like that thing about me, well then I'm going to do it way more. And uh it's like yeah, it's been a it's been a weird weird road. Like I've definitely been an asshole. I feel like if I could go back with comedy, I wouldn't feel so threatened by people and actually like be fine about stuff. But I think I was I was like a little rabid dog that was like looking for scraps like of, of meat and just going this is putrid meat I will eat this meat and it'll be fine and then I will be angry with other little dogs looking for the pieces of meat as well and bark at them and if if
0: you if you had like a friend i was going to say or a sister and i suddenly remember i saw your sister answering back to a negative review under one of your youtube videos (gasps) did she yeah she did it's brilliant oh my god that's so nice she's not funny and she's like actually she's my sister and she is funny and i was like (laughs) that is so great
1: (laughs) oh my god because i don't look at my youtube videos because i have like such a like uh You know, because of that thing of, like, wanting to be liked or whatever. And when I did comedy, because I wasn't, like, big or anything, I would just get the reception from the crowd, and I'd be like, oh, cool, Mm -hmm. I'm having a good time. And then, like, when you get up levels and stuff, you would have people commenting about you. Mm -hmm. And, like, Jesus like I get a lot of shit that I ignore. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. And it's pretty polarizing. You're
0: pretty, polarizing. Nice, you're pretty we... polarizing There's in the comments. Not I mean you're not polarizing cuz the comments aren't worth anything, but what I mean is yes. there's loads of people who are like she's absolutely incredible and there's loads of really horrible vulnerable men who are <laughs> railing against the idea that you have the confidence to go on stage and be funny.
1: Oh man, yeah. it's so funny Don't when go I go. Near I... Em. <laughs> oh my god, thank you. like Jenny and like I know uh, like definitely, I I I haven't I haven't fought to look on YouTube. Like if I want to bring down my self esteem, I do look at myself on Twitter and see yeah. what people are saying. You know what I mean? But YouTube is a new. Um, but with uh, yeah, like there is a thing of like I think I was sad about it before, but it is going to be like every time I go on television, even if like I think some people are angry with me because I'm fat and I go on telly, and it's like I just and like. I, I can't wait until, it's quite a lot of weight to get rid of before I'm acceptable for you to be on the telly, for me to be on the telly. Probably take about two years for me to be acceptable to whoever's tweeting about me. And I can't wait that long. And I'm really not arsed. So, you know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but my point, my the question I was going to ask when I mentioned your sister. Yes. Was if there were a younger comic or a younger version of you that you could... That you could say right to avoid some of the difficulties I've had, to, or, or if not avoid yeah. them, but be, be better prepared for them or able to sidestep them. What would that be if you could? Oh, if you could pass on that nugget.
1: I think like if someone is slacking you off, it really is on them, and you don't have to. I think I, I think if I, when I had people slagging me off or whatever. I would go well. Obviously, there's something wrong with me, so I have to like change myself in order to be acceptable to that person. But like, you know, that that person is crazy. Like, why would you listen to someone who would take their time out of their day to do that? Like, they're as crazy as a person who like who bloody walks around with their trousers down on the street they're both like weird abnormal behaviour that you're just like I'm not gonna you know I wouldn't I wouldn't take their so I, I would say like you know if someone's being a prick to you uh don't listen to them yeah I don't that's such a shitty piece of advice isn't it I don't know I was, uh, no that's yeah. good
0: I like that that's good it's a good point it's a good point if someone's insulting you it's more about them than you
1: it really that's is a great, that's a it great it really is because I'm quite nice like there's no reason <laughs> you know I've programmed myself since a young age to be as un- unhateable as possible. So as a defence mechanism. So why, if you choose to hate me, it really is your choice. Like, you know, I feel, I don't know. That's a bit, is that weird? It is a bit.
0: Uh, no, it throws up other questions that we don't have time for. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> programming yourself, I know, I know. I know what you mean. Programming yourself to be like I think I've I think uh I think of that in the way men dress the way someone uh, someone described men as having a uniform and that's absolutely right yeah. that. and it's it's designed to not present a target for ridicule or attack.
1: You know, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's true. what it is.
0: Like you know, men are vulnerable to attack in different ways and different types of attack than women a lot of the time. But but I think <laughs> but I think uh, there is a, a fear of being laughed at by the pack and a fear of being held up to ridicule that makes most men dress as boringly as they possibly can. And it's easy to look at men and go, Oh, they're really boring, they've got no imagination uh, without necessarily going, Oh no, that's a that's a tactic. That's a don't look at me, don't notice me, don't say anything about me, I don't want to be laughed at
1: tactic being laughed at it's all right like be <laughs>
0: I'm, you know? I'm, I'm glad we got to that point at the end of my arguably mawkish what about Menery?" which no. i didn't mean it to sound like
1: <laughs> no genuinely like i care i, I think i have an adversarial relationship sometimes with men on twitter and stuff mm. but you know i i i love one of you and like <laughs> i i have relatives so that are like you are good Essentially. It's not like
0: yeah. I'm and I'm know. I'm not abs- I'm absolutely not trying to speak up for the adversarial men on Twitter. So much as say I relate to that idea of programming yourself to be likable or programming yourself yeah. to be acceptable.
1: Yeah, that's, did. did, did uh, that's yeah, fuck him. That's <laughs>
0: Yeah. Are you happy?
1: Uh no, I've cried for a majority of your podcast though. So. <laughs> um it would be hilarious if I did say um, Honestly, honestly. I think I am. I think I am. I'm way happier. Like yeah, am I happy? I mean short answer, yeah. Uh long answer, not all the time. And uh but I'm very I'm very happy and I'm very like uh yeah. I am happy. Essentially I am happy. And it's alright to not feel happy though. I think there's this thing of like I feel as well as a... uh I think I didn't talk about a lot of difficult stuff as well before because like I didn't want to give off the impression that it was not a nice job to do or like I felt like I was letting the side down and stuff. And it's like I don't doubt how much I love doing this or like, you know, like I love doing it. And I only talk about that because I want other people to love doing it as well. Like, yeah, so I am essentially happy, I think. But can I can I tell you that with a straight face when I've still got, like, a load of snot in my nose and stuff, you know, it's like, nah, that is hilarious. <laughs> yeah, essentially I'm happy.
0: Thanks, man. So that was Alison. Thank you, Alison. I really enjoyed that. And uh, we spoke to each other for ages and ages, and I enjoyed every minute of it. I, and I, I just am so grateful for... Um, for Alison's time and uh, how candid she was and how she was prepared to wrestle and wrangle with some difficult stuff in the pursuit of... Kind of talking about it, getting other people to talk about it. Hopefully, people listening to this will be inspired by her. I know I am. So, thank you to Alison. Thank you to all the usual people. Nathan Wood for producing and editing the episode. Moz, our new logger, for logging. Um, thank you to podcast consultant Peter Dobbing. Uh, this podcast largely exists to keep Brett Goldstein happy. Um, and uh, <laughs> uh, and that is that. You can get extra content: twenty five minutes of extras, including the importance or not of doing reps in comedy, like exercise, repetition type reps. Uh, you know, reps of the circuit. We mean, um, and we'll talk about the journey of Alison expressing her mental health honestly on stage. Loads of that available if you're in the Insiders Club, plus all the usual stuff: Q and As with Nish, with Alfie, James Acaster, Fern Brady, plus the incredible self help for comedians special with Amanda Donnet, who I have not spoken to for too long, and we'll rectify that if you're listening. Amanda, okie dokie, alisonspittle.com, search for her show wet at the Edinburgh Fringe. My show is going to be at the Edinburgh Fringe. It's a work in progress called A Shared Illusion. So go to the Edinburgh Fringe website and, I mean, just click through a really confusing series of buttons or just Google Stuart Goldsmith, Ed Fringe 2022. That's got to be your fastest thing. Um, or no, you don't even need to do that. Go to StuartGoldsmith.com. I have just recently built a button on there which jumps out of you. I don't like a pop-up button, but this one's quite schmick and um and it jumps out at you. So go and be jumped out at. Um Uh, I mentioned the socials earlier on. Instagram and Twitter, it's at Alison Spittle. I'm at ComComPod on Twitter and at Stuart Goldsmith Comedy on Instagram and (laughs) TikTok. TikTok, who are sponsoring the high street this year. They've got some massive sponsorship deal with Edinburgh. Ah, uh, that seems fine. Um, so you go to stuartgoldsmith.com, find out everything else you need to. And, um, and now I'll post amble at you shortly and I'll tell you all about Glastonbury and the Bootross's gig. Then next week, I think we have Ria Lena, uh, which is brilliant. Then we have Sh- the episode. <laughs> I'm not referring to Ria as an object. Ria Lena, which is brilliant. An interview with Ria Lena, which is brilliant because she is brilliant. And then a superb episode as well with the fabulous Sean McLaughlin which is good, <laughs> which is a good comedian. Um, and then a couple more in the can to record soon. Very exciting. Goodbye, casuals. I'll post Amble at the Hardcore in just a second. Okay, so at Glastonbury I can't not tell you about this. I my little heart swelling with pride. Boutros, as you know, is six and eh, kind of a third, nearly a half. Um and uh he writes his own jokes. And I'd love to tell you his own jokes, but maybe I'll get him to maybe I'll get him to record some of his jokes and I'll put them as a special episode of the podcast. Let me know if you'd like to hear that. I'd certainly like to broadcast it. Um but they're not I mean, listen. Obviously, I'm a father and my eyes are misted over with paternal pride. But also, I just think objectively, they're really good jokes. They're not. Just daft kitty jokes. They are daft jokes by a six-year-old, but all three of them have got. do to- oh, wonderful. All three. That's his entire set, and he performed it at the Blunderbus. He got up at the ed- at, um This is me saying Edinburgh. He got up at Glastonbury. Um, uh, Bob Slayer and Lucy Hopkins were there with the wonderful Blunderbus, and um, they had a little kind of talent show thing going on. Very casual, just a relaxed performance outdoors. Uh, and Boutros got up and did uh, all three of his jokes. He'd had a bit of a warm-up. I'd got him on stage on the side. Sunday morning on the Summerhouse stage. And thanks to everyone at Glastonbury, a bit wider context, I had a banger gig um, uh, comparing the Astrolabe, uh, which was completely full. There was like 2,000 people in there uh, because on the Thursday night, there's no like there's music on, but none of the massive stages are open. So the theatre circus fields are just rammed. And the Thursday night comparing to a literally packed tent for, I mean, hours. <laughs> I was there from, I think, seven till midnight. Um so, so much fun to do that. So thank you to Haggis. Thanks to Mick and everyone at that stage. Um, and also, I got to perform later that night. I got to do one of the most, I think, I mean, I'm, I'm, I think it was one of the most impressive technical pieces of comparing I think I've ever done, where I had to walk on and tell a huge crowd of people who had been dancing to the Box 9, what are they called? Box 9 Lightline Band, which is kind of, if you've seen Feeding the Fish, that... This is not, I mean, I don't know if any of the fish is a point of reference for most of you. They're a juggling act who got in early doors 20 years ago with synchronized light stuff on their props. And well, box nine are, um, people who do something similar with, but with, uh, drums and brass doing dance anthems. So just this huge kind of amazing musical and visual onslaught. And the place was absolutely jumping. And I had to go on as everyone, as they left and everyone was like, gee, one more song, one more song. I had to go on and say, A, not one more song. That's over booed by everyone. And B, we now have to perform an incredible kind of like a semiotic gear shift and get you in the mood for a comedy hypnotist. And I managed to pull that off. I was just so on it. I managed to convert a crowd of dancing people into staying, sitting down, and watching a comedy hypnotist and having a great time. That was Misty and the Sandman. Apparently, I didn't see much of them, but they were very, very good. So, thank you to that lot. Then I did hours and hours at the Summer House stage, thanks to Ed Petrie, the regular compare of that stage, and also Jess, whose stage manages it. Um, and. Um, Uh, Liam as well and and the L's and everyone else backstage that looked after me there Um, that was great fun and then the last thing I did was a a set at the cabaret stage which was quite glorious going on with uh, Windsor comparing just sensationally he's exactly what you need on that stage enormous tent um and he has the skills to fill it even when there's no one there to to make it feel like a gig even when it's it's uh, under attended um because I clashed with Diana Ross worst luck but before me Les Bubb was on amazing war- award winning mime It's just one of the best technical Marts I've ever seen and very very funny Um, And then the sound went, but he was a mime, so he was able to carry on, and he did so brilliantly. And and thank you to everyone. I know lots of podcast listeners came to see me there. I had a lovely time. Uh, So thanks to Charlotte at the Cabaret and everyone else backstage. I I think lots of the Leicester Comedy Festival people were helping backstage there, so thanks to all of them. It was a really lovely experience. Right, that's the context. The Sunday morning at the Summer House, I got Boutros up on stage during one of my many, many links um, in order that he could tell his joke, and he told it really well. He did uh, one of his original jokes, Absolutely fantastic. Went down a treat. Um, And then later on, I think the previous day he'd done a stand-up workshop with with someone. I don't know who. I wasn't there because I was working so hard. I didn't get to spend all that much time with him. Then... We went to the outside circus stage where brilliant Annabelle Holland was warming up for Fail, 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 Win, which is uh, Marky J and Loz because doing this. I'm just refing loads and loads of stuff here. they were doing an amazing circus show. It's got a fire and it's like a multiple, like an eight plate, plate spinning husband and wife act, which was very like a contemporary husband and wife act when they were talking about therapy and getting along with each other. Brilliant. Um, And before that, Annabelle was warming up, comparing, and she got um, uh, a few children out of the audience, including Boutros, and got him to do his joke. And it was a joke I hadn't heard. And I just want to tell you about that moment, because that moment was me hearing what I knew was an original joke, because it it made sense in a very him kind of way. It was a very wonky, funny way. I'd love to tell it to you, but I'll let him do that in his own time. I'll I'll see if he minds me posting the video somewhere. Um, So he told his joke, and I hooted with laughter, because... I was hearing it for the first time live on stage. I cannot tell you how it made me feel. Now, if you remember Ginger and Black, who are contemporaries of mine, were sort of gigging sort of a comedy award kind of early doors open mic gigs at the same time as me. Both went on to fabulous things. They had a joke about how this kid was going to be forced to grow up and go to military accountancy school. And this is my point. I'm not, I don't wish for a life in comedy, Uh, all those roads and uh, all the heartache. I don't want that for the bootross. He's going to military accountancy school as soon as he's old enough. But um, so I'm letting him get it all out of his system just now. That's how I'm framing it mentally. Um, he did this this little kind of get up and do a bit as as a kind of compare thing. And then once he'd done that, he had three gigs under his belt. And then he went and did an actual gig. He did all three of his jokes. He was so brave and did this wonderful kind of six-year-old thing of like, he'd, he'd sort of stand ready, kind of frozen. And then time for it, they'd pass in the mic. And then he'd do a feed line and then he'd stand frozen, kind of staring into space with his mouth half open while he waited for them to repeat the feed line. And then, you know, what do you call it sort of thing. Uh, And then he'd do the punchline and he did that all three times. And my God, my heart. Oh, my God. It was just so, so lovely. And I should say uh, it is impossible to end this story about how well he did (laughs) without taking a leaf from the uh, Alan Partridge audio book, the first one um the which was uh, i can't remember what it's called um but uh wonderful wonderful audio book where he does an entire chapter on the birth of his son and then finishes it with uh and then a few years later we also had a girl and i experienced similar feelings <laughs> so i i've kind of barreled into that um because obviously i'm telling you a story at length about specifically one of my children and um, the other one is also excellent but as yet not a comedian so well done mate well done Boutros Um, thank you for listening everybody two absolutely corking episodes Rialina and Sean McLaughlin coming up soon Um, and then uh, we've got and I'm just because you've listened this far I feel like I should tell you but um, I'm not going to because every time I tell you something that isn't already in the can it goes pop for some reason so you'll have to wish bye for now oh and uh, not bye for now come and get some Edinburgh tickets in. I've really got to start promoting it properly, which I never do. Um, we've sold a decent amount. We need to sell more. It's only a week. The rub is far too big. <laughs> please, please come and see me do new material. Stuartgoldsmith.com or comedianscomedian.com both have a link on them. All right. Bye for now. For now.